Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, We're revisiting an amazing conversation I had a little over a year ago with Anne Kepler, Executive Vice President and General Counsel at Prudential Financial. Anne initially went to school as an art and theatre major, but really fell in love with the law when, as you'll hear her talk about, she realised she had an opportunity to impact lives through her work. I really enjoyed revisiting this episode and hearing Anne's journey going from a firm to an in-house role and the opportunities for career progression as an in-house lawyer. She talks about the lessons she learned about leadership and the skills it takes to succeed as an in-house leader, especially how important it is just to be a good listener. Anne also has a wonderful perspective on some of the most important issues we're facing today, including diversity, equity and inclusion, and also the issue of economic security. So you'll hear her talk about that as well. So in the usual fashion, I'm excited to say, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Jim. Now, Anne, your first passion, not necessarily law. Your first passion was theatre. Tell us about those early days, how you moved from being passionate about theatre to actually gaining a passion in law. Sure. So I uh, I don't have any lawyers in my family, but I went to college actually thinking I was going to be a math major, a math government major, but I was spending all my time in theatre. And I thought, well, gee, if I'm spending all my time in theatre, I might as well major in theatre. So by yep. the time I got to the end of college, much to my father in particular chagrin i decided i was going to be an actress so i went to new york to become an actress and thought it would be better to have a job as a paralegal and waiting on tables because i waited on tables before so that was my introduction to the law was being a paralegal in a big new york law firm and then i eventually realized i was not going to be an actress that wasn't going to work out and i thought well if i'm if i'm doing this law thing i'm not gonna be a paralegal i might as well go to law school and went actually thinking I was going to do a joint degree in law and get a master of fine arts and arts administration and just be in the administrative side of the arts, yep. but found that I really, really liked law school and I liked the analytical thinking. I liked the advocacy piece. I liked the problem solving, you know, I liked the opportunity to shape policy to impact lives. And I thought, well, no, just, I should do this law thing. I'll pursue law. Yep. And then, then I was off and running. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about the, your early career in law. I, I know you spent some time, well, actually as a partner of both Jenner and Block and Wilma Hale. Tell me about that part of the journey. Sure. So I, I grew up in New Jersey and had been in New York. So I really thought of myself as a New Yorker and I was going to stay there, but I was applying for clerkships, legal clerkships in federal courts and applied in New York and Washington, D.C., and thought, well, whichever happens, I'll do. And I, to my surprise, because I, I really thought I'd be staying in New York, got a clerkship in Washington, D.C., and so moved to Washington, D.C., and then found I loved it and stayed there. So my first job, as you said, was at Jenner and Block. I was looking for a law firm where I didn't have to specialize. I knew I wanted to do litigation, and I thought of myself as an appellate litigator. That's what my clerkships were. So I went there to do appellate litigation, and was doing a lot of First Amendment litigation, which was which was a lot of fun. And then had a partner who came in as a, he was a last 
collateral from another firm and he had a bunch of clients who were insurance agent trade associations who at the time were trying to keep banks out of insurance. And he was looking for an associate to work for him. Wasn't thought of by my colleagues as very sexy work, but I saw it as an opportunity because it was just the two of us yep. and um, started working with him. And it was great from my perspective because it was a you know, right at the intersection of litigation and regulatory and legislative. Turned out to be very good for me because he went into the Clinton administration and left the clients to me. So I got two Supreme Court arguments out of it, lots of testimony in front really? of the federal. Yeah, it was great. And then that kind of just petered out as a client base in terms of their work. And so I got a headhunter call. I never thought of myself as going in-house, but I saw, you know, I got a call. And it was an opportunity, frankly, to work for then a woman general counsel. And there was a woman who was the vice chair of Fannie Mae. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try this. I didn't, I didn't yep. know anything about it and, and found I really loved it. Started out as the deputy general counsel. And then when the general counsel left seven weeks after I started, oh. became, became it's all opportunity, and that's yeah, all, all about opportunity. opportunity. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I became acting general counsel, and I joke that it's the first time I ever got paid a living wage for acting, was being acting, yeah. <laughs> acting general counsel. That's um, actually very funny. So I uh, eventually became general counsel and stayed there, learned a huge amount. I mean, just a huge amount about it, what it means to be in-house and and you know, managing large budgets and talent development and working with a board and working with senior management. I left there after seven years and went back out to Wilmer Hale to really work with them. They were developing at the time a mortgage law practice and worked with them for a while and then realized that my real calling was being in-house, that I love. In-house. Yeah, yeah I really love working with the business. Yep. And so I had this opportunity to go to Prudential and that was 12 and a half years ago. And now here I am, still in Prudential. Are. And tell me, what are the key differences between you know, partner at a law firm, working in-house? What are the things that you did really miss uh, about the in-house um, well, you know, interaction with a bull? Yeah, and it's interesting, Jim. I, yeah. I love being part of the business sort of beginning to end because I think yep. even if you're an outside I, – I, you know, I had some clients who I had had for years – but you're just, you're, it's just not the same to be there and yep. thinking about the strategic decisions and how all it fits in. I also found I liked the management piece of it. I liked the people management part of it that I think is sometimes under undervalued at law firms in terms of yeah. the work. Yeah, I, I think that's – and that includes, do you think, the career development part of the people management too? Because there are – I mean, face it, the law firm, there, there can often be limited career opportunities, especially if the law firm's got an up-and-out policy. Or uh, what the other thing I always think about law firms is there's only an opportunity in an entire career for several promotions, two or three promotions, associate, senior associate of counsel, perhaps, and partnership. And I think in a 20-year-plus career, that's not a whole lot of opportunity for a promotion. So I wonder whether... I have wondered in the past whether the law firm model could do better around that kind of uh, the promotion, the development. Because every time someone, certainly um, in my experience, got a promotion at a law firm, I said, savour it because they're few and far between. So is that one of the aspects too? I do that, think it um, is, although, you know, yeah. it's interesting. I think in, in, in-house, if you think of yourself as just a lawyer and you think of yourself as the career progression just means I get to the whatever the next level is. Right. It can feel it's, like it has the similar. same. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think hear. The, the difference in a company is that for lawyers in particular who are, you know, analytical thinkers by definition, often learn the business really well. There are yep. more opportunities to do something other than just law. 
yep. you know, compliance, you got to risk. We, we've had lawyers that go went into the business. Yep. So there, there are greater opportunities, I think, in, you know, in-house. Well, and I suppose in a sense for yourself too, I mean, you've got a strong focus on external affairs, public policy, from some of the research I've done, you know, of, often the voice of the company. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that your experience there and your, your passion there. And is that one of the, I suppose, the additional skills or the additional features of being in-house and being able to broaden out the skill set and the role that you have to play in an organisation? Yeah, I think it is. And and I, you know, if I look back at myself and I'm true to myself, I realise I've always been a bit of a policy wonk. So I like the policy yeah. side. And although I thought of myself as staying in New York, I, I found the right place ending up down in Washington, D.C., because it is sort of the center of policy from a legal, pers- you know, from a legal perspective. So I and I and early on in my career, I worked on legislative issues, regulatory issues. So they're all intermeshed with the policy yeah. side. It is meant very much to me to work for a purpose driven company yeah. to be able to sh- demonstrate that you're giving value, not just to the customer, but also sort of societal values. Um, yeah. And and that was true when I was working at Fannie Mae. It's true when I'm working at Prudential. So that that piece of it, I don't think I would want to work in an environment where it wasn't that. And it also yep. makes law very much integral to the business. It's not just an adjunct. It really is integral to the to the business itself. Yeah. And so tell me, how did you end up, what were the steps that you took to align yourself, if you like, to become in part, at least the voice of the company? Because the, the trust, no doubt, that you'd mm-hmm. have to develop passion at your end tell us about that kind of journey so far as you know taking on that role of you know external affairs and public policy is concerned being that voice right so i you know it's interesting i i part of it is the passion right so then that yeah. leads you to just have an interest in it and to learn a lot and to be to be in the space i early on in my career sought out opportunities to work on matters that had a public policy aspect to them and where i could use my advocacy skills in that space as well as in what you might think of as a more traditional traditional law space i actually think you know, having early training in appellate advocacy was an asset because you really have to be very honed in on what does that person care about and how do I talk to that person about what they care about and using my voice in that that kind of a way. It was coalition building is a lot of the work I've worked on. Frankly, part of it is just being there and having a viewpoint and being able to express it. Articulate it, yeah. Any recent examples that are highlights for you of being able to express the view of the company and be out there as its voice? Yeah, sure. I, I think of two things. One is the you know, what we're doing in the legislative side in the in the United States in particular, at the federal level, thinking about how do we find retirement solutions. I mean, retirement and retirement security is a huge issue, not just in the United States, yeah. it's really everywhere globally with Worldwide, an aging, yeah. aging population. How do you find solutions there? We've been working hard about both both product solutions and public-private partnerships that to try to find solutions. That's one area. And then with everything that's been going on between the pandemic and the racial tensions that have been happening here in the United States, being an advocate for racial equity, for diversity inclusion, for frankly addressing the issues around financial fragility as they show up, in particular for underserved communities. 
Yeah. Let's do a bit of a deeper dive on both of those, the racial equality and the financial stability, the economic mm-hmm. security. Let's start with financial and economic security. Clear, I mean, everybody's goal in the end really to, is to develop some level of economic security so they can pay the bills and so they can you know, live reasonably well and have a retirement. I mean, a key issue for, you know, for the countries worldwide, for countries worldwide, of course. Tell us about the specifics in the US, some of the things that perhaps some of the initiatives that Prudential Financial looking at, some of the things that you're passionate about, moving the needle and increasing the level of that economic security across the population. So it's a, you know, it's a critical issue. And and what we've been working on at Prudential is really kind of a soup to nuts. How do you start with financial education at an early age and for populations that need them? How do you you work on that? Then Then it's a question of, what do people need at what stage in their life? I mean, ideally, prudentialists, you know, providing solutions would like to be able to say, where are you in your lifespan? And either either we can deliver it as a product or we can put you in touch with or collaborate as in terms of giving. So that means things like, as you know, there are huge issues in the United States about student loan debt, you know, the yeah. ways in which we can find solutions around that frankly, just people having emergency savings. And we've been very successful in working with employers and frankly, working with the legislatures to think about solutions there. How can you have a way? We're good at kind of getting people to start through their employers in particular, start saving for retirement. Are there ways we can get them to save for emergency savings too, or be able to use their retirement savings in a way that gives them a pool of savings? We're also trying to do very targeted deep dives into communities that have been traditionally underserved by large insurance companies. I mean, it's similar to what the banks have been doing. And and some of them we do in partnership with the banks. How do you go into those communities, become a trusted advisor, figure out, it's a lot of listening, right? Figure out what are the products they need? What are the delivery systems that they need? And be, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's bespoke to a person, but it can be very bespoke to a community. On the racial equality front that you've touched on before, some of the initiatives there and that are close to your heart that Prudential Financial and perhaps the legal department have been working on? Yeah, sure. So we made our, I mean, the company has been committed to this for a very long time and, and they've sort of doubled down on our commitments. I, you know, where there are things we're doing internally for our own workforce, there are things we're doing on the business side, similar to what we were talking about before. Are there, are there communities of color in particular where we can go in and, and do bespoke situations? And then we're doing things on the policy side. We made a conscious decision that on several issues, we were going to use our voice to try to advance not just racial equity, it's frankly equity and inclusion. One is voting voting rights, one is criminal justice reform, and it's sort of racial equity, police reform closely related to it. We've done a lot of voting in the voting rights space. That is, you know, we had the election last year, we made sure we were being very open about Making sure that our our folks had had were able to vote had the way to vote through, through coalitions. Are there people in my department who were electoral monitors and, and would also yep. ban phones that people could you know call up questions? We've been pretty outspoken in terms of our position on some of the laws that have been passed, and really want to be forceful in saying we as a company believe it's best for the communities we operate in and our customers that there be as great access as there can be to voting. The last 
12, 15 months has been really difficult for a lot of people with COVID. Mm-hmm. What's the impact that you have seen, particularly women workers, with the ch- challenges around balancing, you know, balancing work life, family, and so forth? Because it's been a clear focus for lots of organisations, but it's really brought the impact home over the last uh, over the COVID period. So I'd love to hear about you know, your thoughts on that and and steps that you think, well, certainly that Prudential might have taken. You think organisations can take to help address probably somewhat of an imbalance there on the impact right. of an event and like I think, COVID. you know, it is pretty dramatic when you see the numbers yeah. in terms of how the extent to which women have taken up the slack and how many women have fallen yeah. out of the workforce. I mean, it's actually quite... That's the most worrying thing, I think, yeah. uh, the, the actual women falling out of the workforce and how to get them back in again. Right. And the way we're... And- Listen, I I say to my husband all the time, we're really fortunate that our, my kids are in their twenties. Yeah. Twenties, I can't imagine what it would be like to try and work when you yeah, have I'm younger the, children the, in school. I'm exactly the same. As I've been thinking to myself, how on earth have, has everyone else survived right. when you've got kids in you know primary school and you know even in middle school and high school? Right. I mean, um, I what what I think we have found a prudential, and I've certainly found in my relationship with the folks who are on my team is that it's flexibility is key. Yeah. How can, and, and, and it is very personal, right? What is, what works for yeah. one person may not work for the next person. We've become much more flexible. We've been very successful working remotely. So, and having found that, okay, we can work remotely. That means we yeah. can create flexibility going forward yeah. for folks. The company itself doubled down in terms of what was available for support for childcare, for example, for taking paid leave. But childcare, you know, support is good, but you got to find it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're actually thinking about that. Are there ways in which we, we've got a good partnership if you're in the headquarters area in terms of getting childcare support? Are there more things we can do in that regard? But I, you know, I think being as leaders, I think it really calls on your empathy skills, you know, and your authenticity and showing your own vulnerability and making it safe, frankly, for folks in your group to say, I need help or I need to take a break or I just can't do this now. Any specific initiatives that your team has put in place to create a better environment, make it a little safer, anything? Yeah, sure. So I, it may sound trivial, but it actually has turned out to be real incredibly impactful it's the small things it, <laughs> it's it the is small it things. ends up being yeah. right that are quite meaningful company decided that we would have every last friday in the month be a no meeting friday and that's across right. the whole across the right. whole company it has been a huge relief to folks to be you know whether yep. you decide you're going to use it as a pto and actually can encourage people to take some time off or encourage them to take care of things that they wouldn't have otherwise taken care of. In my department, we've extended this during the summer that every Friday afternoon will be a no meeting Friday. And and then I think what I've really encouraged my folks to do is to say, do a formal shutoff. Basically say, I'm going off to my team. You know, I said, my team, I'm going off. I'm not going to send you anything yep. this weekend. If I send you something the weekend, I'll say on it. Do not respond until Monday or do not read yep. till Monday. I'm not really yep. good at fearing that delayed sending. Yeah. <laughs> if I were better at that, I would do it that way. So I think those kind of things can be incredibly meaningful. Yep. I am hopeful, actually, that those adjustments that we've all made will be permanent in the terms of the expectations that we set for ourselves and each other the empathy and certainly the flexibility around working because we've all recognized i mean to be able to overnight transition to online and for many businesses certainly not all but for many businesses on the professional services side to effectively not skip a beat 
has been quite extraordinary. So there are no doubt there are some positives that you know I, I hope we're all going to be able to carry on with. But it's certainly some of the negatives that I'm hoping will be unwound. We've talked about you know, the impact on you know, certainly women who have dropped out of the workforce, and there are a bunch of other others too. So, but I think the leadership skills, the empathy, and recognizing the adverse impact and what we can do about it is certainly going to be important for the long-term health of, of the businesses and, of course, of the individuals in those businesses. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, we're we're going to go to a hybrid working environment. We've been so right. successful working in and, you know, where the vast majority of people will be hybrid. I, and I think the challenge there is making sure the people who aren't in the room feel as if they are included yeah. and just have to have a better skill set in there. But in some ways... You know, as much as I hate looking at myself in the little box, it is, you know, having everybody in the same size box is a, is, is an equalizer. Interesting. Yeah. And, I and actually, can that, be actually. More inclusive and can be more inclusive. Yeah. I think we've also found that with remote working, we can throw a much broader net in terms of recruitment and the kind, the people yep. we can get and diversity, certainly geographically, but by definition of geographic, that means you can get a whole different kinds of skill sets that you can attract. If people don't have to live close to the headquarters. And tell me any detail around that hybrid model. Is it that people get to choose the amount of days they'll be in and out of the office? Has that been settled yet, Prudential, or, that's or at least the, legal that's department? That's the idea. I mean, working, right. working with your manager. I mean, obviously, there's some jobs yeah. that have demands for you. If you're a trader on their, yep. on their asset management shop is going to make a make a difference but the vast majority of jobs can be quite flexible so the idea was you you kind of we're, we're trying to leave with prepping this comes from listening and doing surveys yep. of, our, of our employees of what do they want and the vast majority you know want to be home more want, want yeah the wants the flexibility yeah looking back and some tell me about some of the highlights for you both at prudential perhaps before prudential what kind of stands out after such a illustrious career i mean you've been very successful what do you think about what do you remember what are the highlights well i have to say it's building really successful teams i mean i and that's both at law firms and at in-house and it's teams of folks who are feel confident in themselves are challenged you know are learners who are adaptable they can stretch feel like they're contributing they are contributing you know, and are high, highly motivated. So that I think is the most satisfying thing, frankly. Yeah, a constant theme on this podcast. It's mm. is that it's about teams. It's never about the I and the me. It's always about impact that you've had on others and the teams you get to build and watch grow. Well, and it's the and it's the individuals too. I mean, it's all together. Yeah, yeah they come together, but they are obviously sure. individuals too. The mentorship and the sponsorship but yes it's, yeah that's the most satisfying anything in the past that on reflection you spent too much time worrying about but which uh, as i say on reflection is probably not time well spent no i think that there was a time in my career early career maybe my mid-career maybe, maybe it's more free maybe it's closer <laughs> than i think where i thought i needed to know all the answers that if somebody was going to you know yeah, people are going to ask questions yeah. and i needed to know all the answers and i needed to know all the answers right and and there are two aspects that i think of that that are wrong and misplaced one is you don't need to know the answers it's better to have you need to find that balance and it's better to be able to say i I'll find that out from somebody who does know the answers. It's not me. And the other thing is that I have really learned as a leader, it is far more important to listen than to speak. And you have to know when is the right time to speak and you have to be conscious of the impact of when you speak and what really makes a difference is to be a really good listener. It's funny, that one takes, for some reason, that one takes the longest to actually realize and understand. 20s, sometimes even 30s, you don't get that. 
It's really later on in your career. And I, I do wonder myself, why does it take so long for that one, that particular attribute, which I think most successful people end up coming to the realisation of, but it, it's just not a quick realisation. No, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a level of maturity and self-confidence yep. that enables you to do it, right? Yep. I've also yep. had a couple lessons learned, you know, sort of painful yep. lessons learned. <laughs> That's always a good way. <laughs> Yeah, the patience and the power, actually, of listening and knowing when, when to speak and when not to speak. Yeah, I, th- I think the earlier you can develop that skill, the more successful you'll be in any kind of career. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Oh, one thing I didn't ask you, I call this kind of like the myth buster section of the interview, but are there any kind of best practices that are generally accepted out there as a general counsel or running of a in-house legal department, which you disagree with, which you have a different view on? It's an interesting question. I, yeah. And I, I don't know whether this is still a myth, but I think it maybe we're growing out of it, that what you needed to have a strong in-house legal department was great technical skills, great technical right. knowledge, expertise among your team, and that matches off well with the business. And I really think what makes the difference between a strong in-house department and strong in-house lawyer and one who isn't successful is really your persuasive, your skill set around persuasion. I mean, there's so little that we actually do where it's black or white. And, you know, most lawyers don't have the right to say to some the business person, well, you can't do that. It's very, you know, that's sort of infrequent. What you got to do is persuade somebody to go one way or another with your credibility, with your advocacy skills, with your acumen in terms of knowing where they want to go and their trust in you. So that I think is the, those skills that the soft skill, what you think of as the soft skills are really, really important and distinguishing, I think. Being an overweight black letter law skill set and the brilliant legal mind, let's put it that way. It's really more about You've said persuasion, being able to listen and being able to communicate in a way, no doubt, which gathers the confidence of those around you and has you as a trusted, not just a black letter lawyer, but a trusted advisor within the business. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I also frankly think it leads to having a much more, at least in my view, satisfying career where you're not just being asked a legal question and and then thank you very much. But you really get to bring all of your gray matter to, to the table and say, you know, yep. here's my judgment. Here are my thoughts, whether the business thoughts, and uh, and they're appreciated. Yep. What's next? What's next for you, Anne, in Prudential? What do you see the next few years? Uh, your goals, aspirations, what you haven't achieved yet, and you're looking to achieve. I'd like it. Like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, it's a really exciting time, I think, for. The, for I think the legal profession, you yeah. know, and it's not just in house; it's out, out uh, you know, law firms, and I think partnership with between law firms and in house counsel about what that's going to look like. We're going through a journey now about what our relationship's going to be with our outside firms. Oh, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on that, actually. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, I, you know, I think we we have not been a company that have, or at least we haven't had a sort of a bench of firms, but really we want to work with them, and we have a huge commitment to using minority and women-owned women owned firms yep. and getting our majority firms to partner with them, frankly. Yep. You know, moving the needle then, frankly, on the on, even in the majority firms, their ability to, to have a more diverse group of individuals who can work right. on our matters and anybody else's matters. I think, frankly, for my guys, it's a lot of it is, is just 
distinguishing between what lawyers need to do and what they like to do or do to help out their help out their business, you know, clients. We're an yep. expensive resource. So figuring out what lawyers should do and shouldn't do. Yep. And then, you know, being risk smart. I mean, what I, I think most lawyers are A type personalities and they want to you know, there's not another case they haven't read. There isn't another stone they can't unturn. But being able to figure out when 80% is good enough yep. and you should stop, put the pen down is really. So I'm, I'm trying to get my folks to be progressing their way of thinking that way. And then, frankly, to think of themselves as constant learners and very adaptable and not in one narrow set. But as the business ticks and tacks and as the law profession ticks and tacks and as the regulatory issues, they can go with them. They're not going to be locked or left behind in one place. The company itself is going through a huge transformation and the industry is going through a huge transformation. So that is exciting for lawyers, too, because we're along for the ride and hopefully big contributors in terms of you know where we're going. I like the phrase you use there, risk smart, and that's certainly one. So if I can kind of elaborate a little bit there, I I take that means really, I suppose it's what you said, knowing when 80% is good enough and that you're not going to actually, as a lawyer, be able to block off every single risk, but that's not your job. Your job is to be risk smart and work out what the risks are, what the real risks are, and what the risks that you're willing to essentially or the organization is willing to live with and being able to communicate those and then let the business make a decision. Is that is that a bit about what risk smart is? That's um, exactly it, right. And it's right. every piece of that. It's no good being, you know, sort of all in your head about it if you can't communicate it to the business so they can they can make a judgment about whether they want to whether they're willing to assume correct yeah correct and a little bit about your the future what the future might look like in relation to your relationship with law firms or whether it's prudential or more broadly the in-house team relationship with the law firms i'd love to do a bit more of a deep dive in though even though we're coming to the end of the podcast because there's a couple of things you talked about which i thought was interesting if the majority firms don't actually have the diversity within the team asking them to partner with minority owned firms that's one of the initiatives you you, you mentioned yes yes yeah and we've been very successful frankly we, you know started out on the on the litigation side where you could have you know the a minority women owned firm do some of the discovery work or some yep. of the other you know other work but we've been doing on the deal side too, so that they'll do the due diligence on a big M and A deal. Yeah, we've been very successful on the firms. Uh, you know, if you tell them that's the expectation, they'll do it. <laughs> well, that's what I've always f- said. Firms are excellent at meeting client requirements. That's what they're really super good at. So if you're really clear on what those requirements are, or if those requirements are in relation to diversity inclusion, then firms can be really good and they'll find innovative ways to do that, whether it's partnering or whatever the strategy might be. So it's funny because they are such fantastic, I think, service providers, it's just being about clear on what your requirements are. And that uh, I think you, you can be amazed at what law firms will come up with because they've been really good and they've got in their DNA is about making sure the client is happy as long as they know what the requirements are. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think is going to be really interesting going forward is technology. And, you know, we as an in-house are constantly looking for technology solutions that make things easier for us. And and whether it's, you know, reviewing contracts or or other things, you know, other things, you know, we've gone so far beyond the e-discovery space. And I think for law firms, they're going to have to make a decision. I mean, because any individual law firm, it's going to be very difficult for them to make the investment 
in building some technology tool that can pay, you know, that, that is worthwhile. You know, do you go in, you, you, you invest in some third party, you become a coalition of firms that do it, but, you know, in-house counsel, we're being put, you know, this is that, that we're being pushed by our finance people to be as efficient as we can be. And yep. part of that efficiency is finding technology solutions there. Yep. Most of those are, don't sit in law firms. No, they, they don't. I certainly am very confident in one answer, that it can't be that each individual law firm creates its own technology solution. That can't be the answer. Just in the same kind of way that it can't be the answer that each in-house team also creates its own technology solution. That, that can't be right. So whether it's a, it's a single solution or best of breed solutions, that, but certainly, and that's why I think the market will take it. The best of breed will start to surface and the law firms and the in-house teams will be adopting those best of breeds. That, that's certainly my view there. Yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree yep. with you. Yeah, And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. I've had a blast, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jim. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.